You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 123, which means we've actually got three hosts on the air at the same time. We're rocking and rolling. I want to welcome, first of all, from Franklin Springs, Georgia, my friend and colleague, Dr. Danny Anderson. How are you doing, Danny? Oh, I'm hanging in there, Nathan. Good to talk to you again. Danny, of course, is an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College. Michael Farmer, on the other hand, is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing this afternoon? Not too bad. Suffering under the polar vortex again, but it's not, yeah, not yeah. as bad as the last one. Polar vortex here is, you know, 20 degrees overnight, so I, I've got no room to complain. No, you have no room to complain. I think the high today is negative five. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> uh, we have had some emails come in, and, and listeners, I just want to say that we are almost to the point now where we're getting – more emails than we can read week to week. This week we are going to get most of it in, but if we don't get to your email, uh, just pester us until we do. Uh, I think there's a Jesus parable about that, right? Uh, but first of all, I wanted to follow up on Aaron Cowan's email that you guys treated nope, last nope, week. Nope. We, uh, we dealt with Harrison Ayers' email. Aaron Cowan is a different person. You are right. You dealt with Harrison Ayers. I just clicked open the wrong window. Harrison wrote us about our tradition episode, uh, and I've already told the guys I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet. I'm planning to tomorrow when I commute. Uh, but I just wanted to say a little something about his distinction between a living tradition and a documentary tradition. Uh, did you guys deal with that distinction when you responded to him? We apologized, Not- and we said that we thought that we made it clear that the good traditions are the living ones. Okay, very good. Uh, I, I would just say, uh, just to tag on with that, and hopefully I won't go over too much territory you guys have already hit, that there are voices in contemporary Catholic, I guess the, the, the public voice of the contemporary Catholic Church, uh, that do take a more documentary avenue when they treat the tradition uh, as you know a companion of Scripture and so on and so forth. Uh, I would say, though, that, you know, I'll I'll agree with what these guys are saying, that Alistair McIntyre's notion of the tradition is the ongoing argument, uh, is the notion of tradition that most compels me. Uh, Like these guys said, I thought that that we had pretty much headed in that direction in that episode, but I want to just chime in and agree with them that, you know, that's how I imagine tradition in its most life-giving form. And and Danny, I've already alluded to McIntyre once this episode, so you can... Put that notch down if you want to. Everybody take your shots. (laughs) Uh, Michael, now I'll let you get to Aaron Cowan. He says that he has recently learned about our podcast from a friend, Hi Megan, and have been working through much of the back catalog and enjoying it greatly. Though one question, how did you do back-to-back episodes on chess and death without a single mention of Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal? You know, the film where the man plays chess with death. How did we miss that? You know, honestly, it's because when I work on an episode's notes, I'm not thinking about the previous episode. Perhaps I should more. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how we got through the chess episode without mentioning Seventh Seal, the death. You know, we had so much to talk about, but well, sure, sure. Anyway, sorry, I have seen that movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, yeah. I'm very cultured. <laughs> Aaron, he says, is a professor himself. He teaches U.S. history at Slippery Rock University in western Pennsylvania and actually did his undergrad work at a Christian liberal arts school, King College in Bristol, Tennessee, the cross-tri-cities rival to Nathan's beloved Milligan College. And he believes he was there at roughly the same time, 95 to 99, as Nathan. Precisely the same four years. You know, that's a PCUSA school, too, so you have that connection to me. And you can tell him, actually, uh, that I actually know an English professor at Slippery Rock, now that he mentions it. It's interesting. I'll be. It's a small world after all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, The podcast has challenged me, he says, to give more thought to how my faith should influence my teaching and scholarship, even to the diverse audience of a state university. Had a few ideas for future podcasts that I'd love to see, including the great American novel, both the concept, its origins, changing meaning, etc., and maybe a few of the top candidates, Moby Dick, Huck Finn, Great Gatsby, Grapes of Wrath, and what it means for a literary work to be particularly American. I love that idea. 
Mm. Danny, are you uh, up for that? Uh, that's a great idea, yeah. Well, if you guys want to cue that up and then anticipate an episode where I'm the third wheel. Oh, it, it seems to me that you should be asking the questions on that one in that case. Yeah, but I'm not up for another three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he says, slavery in the Bible and larger ancient world, its rise in early modern global trade, American slavery and so on, and explorations of the topic in literature. That's another good suggestion. Especially with 12 Years a Slave uh, looking like it's going to get the best picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps the best-known Christian humanist, C.S. Lewis. Surprised there's not at least one episode about Lewis, as there would be so much to cover. His fiction, his work as a literary scholar, and, of course, popular apologetics. Also fascinating, so Lewis becomes so revered, almost canonical, among late 20th century American evangelicals. Come on, if Star Wars movies are in three full episodes, surely <laughs> Lewis merits one or two. I, I feel like, and, and I'm, once again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to David Grubbs's formulation because the man can turn a phrase. Uh, I feel like C.S. Lewis is a well from whom we dip often. So I feel like we've done C.S. Lewis episodes. They've just spanned dozens of episodes as they are listed. <laughs> Although I will say you are more likely to get a C.S. Lewis episode than a G.K. Chesterton episode given uh, Mr. Grumpy Pants over there. <laughs> True enough. So, thank you for writing in, Aaron. I suspect you're going to get your Great American Novel episode before Danny's off the show. <laughs> All right. Um, shall I go with my letter? Hit it. All right. I have a letter from, or an email, actually. Nobody writes letters anymore. From uh, Peter Gertzen, Christian Humanist. I started listening to your excellent podcast thanks to my brother, John Gertzen, who told me about it a few months ago. And we'll be gratified to hear his name on the air. So there it is. Uh, I have a few I show ideas for you. Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. Definitely look into this one. Uh, Neil Postman, Marshall McLuhan, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, The Gulag Archipelago. Uh, I love how you had no trouble with Solzhenitsyn, but uh, stumbled <laughs> over Archipelago. <laughs> I... I <laughs> I was still stumbling over Solzhenitsyn, but then by the time I got there, I fell. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Russian High Culture 101. Dr. Seuss. That's just fun. I love Dr. Seuss. That would be great. Uh, C.P. Snow's The Two Cultures. I that would be a good one. I could say a few things about that. Uh, socialism, Capitalism, Architecture 101, Surrealism. That would be interesting. Uh, James Thurber uh, or Thame, Thames Gerber is what I started to say. So um, Christendom. Uh, Mark Twain, 19th century American sectarianism. Carl Barth, uh, pietism. Wendell Berry, Joseph Conrad. This is a guy with a lot of ideas. Uh, yeah. Ray Kurzweil and versus Jaron Lanier. That would be kind of interesting. Uh, the classic overrated and underrated right out of uh, uh, the movie Manhattan. Do you remember that, uh, that scene within the Woody Allen movie? Where they had their uh, Academy of the Overrated. Uh, villains, freedom. Francis uh, Fukuyama, Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, uh, which I know that, Michael, you like Graham Greene a lot. So. I like The Power and the Glory, which is the only Graham Greene I've read. Oh, okay. Uh, and finally, here are the winners of your fake paper contest. Uh, okay. Uh, this is something I need to be filled in about, apparently. This predates me. Uh, Melville and Hawthorne as Precursors of Gonzo Journalism by Dr. Michael Farmer. Uh, mixed Metaphors in Late Anglo-Saxon Poetry Artless or Transgressive by Professor David Grubbs. <laughs> and Hermeneutics and Hierarchy, the colon in the academic title by Dr. Nathan Gilmore. That's, uh... <laughs> That's nice. That one actually sounds like a paper Nathan would write. It really does. <laughs> I, that's scary. <laughs> no, Danny, it actually didn't predate you. The week that you were in Chicago at the MLA, ah. uh, this was an idea that Michael had that our listeners should write in with the titles of paper that sound as farcical as your MLA paper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you told me about that. All right. After we assured the listeners that, yes, he really did write a paper with that title. And yes, yes we are the <laughs> academic stereotype. As if I'm not ashamed enough. Now. All right. All right. Oh, shoot. So. Listeners, thank you for writing in. Uh, we always appreciate that feedback. On, onward, gentlemen, into today's subject matter. Uh, 20 years ago, a uh, movie hit theaters uh, that honestly was a little bit unlikely, I thought, in 1994. But 
by the end of my senior year of high school, all of the wannabe hipsters were quoting it. Uh, people were calling each other names that used to be unacceptable words. We'll get to that later. Uh, and everyone wanted to be John Travolta again. And of course I'm talking about Pulp Fiction. Uh, so Michael, since we've got a span of ages on the show, uh, let's start by talking a bit about how each of our social circles received this film. Michael, you were by my calculations, roughly an eighth grader when Pulp Fiction was in theaters. Did you or any of your friends sneak out to it or did you encounter the film later on? Uh, when you're finished with your story, pass the baton along to Danny, and then he can pass it to me. I um, I was aware of the movie because that is about the age I began to be really aware of pop culture. I started reading the newspapers and stuff like that. Um, but I did not see it. And in fact, uh, I was mostly aware of the tropes of Pulp Fiction through two Simpsons parodies of it. They had... Uh, they had an episode of Itchy and Scratchy that Quentin Tarantino supposedly directed where Scratchy dresses up as John Travolta in the film and does a dance and Itchy kills him in some horrible way. And then Tarantino himself comes out on screen and says, what I was trying to do with this is, you know, in the Tarantino voice. And then Itchy cuts his head off. So I saw I saw, I saw, saw that and I saw uh, there was another Simpsons episode called 22 Short Films About Springfield, which is um, – Many of those short films are parodies of segments from Pulp Fiction. So I was I was aware of the film mostly through those two Simpsons episodes when I finally saw it as a freshman in college. And so it failed to shock me the way I think it shocked a lot of people. So, for example, the what I think has to be the most horrifying scene in the movie, the, the scene with Ving Rhames and Bruce Willis in the pawn shop. And yeah, the uh, the terrible things that happened to them there is parody. Th- those things are parodied in that Simpsons episode, so it did not surprise or shock me when I saw it as a as an eighteen year old a few years later. Mm. Um, so that is my experience with the movie. I I did not try to sneak into it. I was not that sort of child. Plus, <laughs> uh, I can assure you that when I was twelve years old, the only sorts of movies I wanted to sneak into were ones with nudity. Uh, so oh, well. Pulp Fiction, violence and profanity wouldn't have done anything for me, I'm afraid. How about you, Danny? Uh, well, I was sort of a, a lone wolf in terms of uh, my interest at that time. And so all of my friends, none of them were particularly interested in kind of art films or anything like that or, or art in general. And so I, I sort of would be, was the one who's tried to drag people to certain things. And, and I remember like 1994 was probably the the height of my interest in film. Like that was a really great year for movies. Um, and it was also the reason I stopped watching the Oscars is because Forrest Gump of all the movies that year won everything. And that was <laughs> absolutely Pulp Fiction, right? Pulp Fiction yes. was nominated for best picture. Yes. A- abjectly awful movie. Uh, just objectively too. Not just, uh, this isn't a subjective opinion of mine. It's a terrible movie. Um, and, <laughs> and I hate it very much. Uh, but then, um, uh, it's just so celebratory of all everything wrong with the baby boomers. It just drives me crazy. So, um, but it's not, I'm not the audience for that movie, but anyway, but so many great movies that year came out. I remember Ed Wood was around that time and, uh, Shawshank Redemption. And there was all sorts of really great movies in Hollywood, uh, out of the Hollywood system that was, uh, really made that an exciting year. And so I remember it being in the context of all of that. And so my memory of it was, it sort of, emblem or uh, it was the emblem for uh, uh everything that was sort of exciting going on at that moment in, in where you sort of had the miramax film the kind of uh, independent vibe brought to mainstream uh studios and clerks i think came out that year too speaking of independent films oh and, yeah uh, and, and so it's a uh, uh to me it's sort of like the symbol of that time and so it was a very exciting moment uh to go to that movie and i remember coming out of it being all sort of buzzed about how sort of refreshing and, and, and odd it was. Uh, and so, but I remember having to sort of defend it against the lovers of Forrest Gump. Uh, never yet <laughs> forgiven Forrest Gump for, for making me the loser in that conversation. So. Danny, had you seen Reservoir Dogs? Uh, gosh, I'm trying to know if I, I don't think I had seen that before this, actually. I think I saw this first. I think this was the, I'm sure this was the first Tarantino movie I saw. And then I went back and later found Reservoir Dogs. Mm hmm. And so, yeah, I wasn't prepared for the, you know, uh, the linguistic gymnastics. So, yeah. um, <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Yes, indeed. Nathan. Well, I was a senior in high school when it hit theaters. I didn't actually see it when I was in high school. 
Uh, although all of my friends who were sort of, like I said, wannabe hipsters, wannabe intellectuals were walking around quoting it. Uh, what I remember, uh, and this might be my own reconstructionist memory going on here, was that that was the time when it re- when the trend really picked up of young white men calling each other the N-word as a term of affection. And I remember it just bugged the snot out of me at the time. It still does, by the way, if I ever hear it happen again. You inspired uh, me. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, but mercifully, I mean, you know, that trend died out for a few years. But, I mean, that's honestly what I remember when it was in theaters. Now, when I was a freshman in college and it was out on VHS, uh, our younger listeners will have to go uh, Wikipedia, those three letters in combination. Um <laughs> There's a horror film called that that might throw them, just so they know. Yeah, there you go, there right. you go. Uh, but uh, it was sort of a, I don't know what to call it. I mean, it wasn't exactly underground because our RAs knew that we got together in people's dorm rooms and watched it on VHS. Uh, but it was definitely one of those things that was vaguely subversive because they were talking about miracles in the Bible and they were cussing up a storm and they were shooting people and shooting up and all sorts of things that we're going to talk about. So, uh, like I said, I mean, it, it was sort of the ideal movie for my freshman year in Christian college uh, because it did mix the sacred and the profane in ways I hadn't really taken on yet. It's so, funny that we both saw it when we were freshmen in college. I guess it is kind of a college freshman movie in a lot of ways. Oh, it really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah. And which, I mean, is, uh, which is no slight on it. I don't mean that it's a juvenile movie or anything like that, but it, it is the sort of movie that inducts you into hip or intellectual society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and if I were a younger man, then probably the first Matrix movie would have served a similar role, right? Or Fight Club. To, yeah, both, both, to of go those, to our... both of those were important to me when I was a freshman, although I hate the Matrix now. <laughs> well, hmm. I, maybe we can do an episode on that down the line, but right now... Uh, Danny, this movie wasn't the first to experiment with nonlinear plots, uh, but certainly that's one thing that was its signature at the time, and it's one of the things that people mention when they talk about it. So, Danny, talk a little bit about the difference between the on-screen sequence of events and the in-story sequence of events, and what's happening literarily, if anything, with that set of filmmaking decisions. Sure, Nathan. Um, Well, you have, first of all, the unhappy privilege of scheduling this podcast right after I've taught my literary theory class. Uh-oh. So uh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> easier is fresh in my head right now. And, and Here this he is goes. A, <laughs> yeah. Step back now. Um, but it, it does to me, it, it serves. Uh, and if you've read easier and his sort of work on reader response and, and literary reception, uh, a way of sort of formula, formulating gaps between the, the work and the reader of the viewer in this case, where the viewer has to sort of work to fill in those gaps. And so while it wasn't the first thing, I think he got the idea from Stanley Kubrick's movie, the killers, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, which is an older Kubrick movie. Um, uh, well, he didn't come up with this idea. Uh, it, it, uh, it was sort of new for the people who would have been going to see it kind of in, in, in studios. And it was sort of one of the things that made it kind of strange and alluring. Uh, and it wasn't odd enough. Uh, it didn't create such a distance between those between the the text and the reader that uh, they just gave up on it. It was it was uh, it was enticing enough to draw them in, and so I think that there's that kind of function. And I will sort of leave theory behind um, after that, um, <laughs> and hopefully this won't be a weekly uh, trend. But uh, uh, it was just a very nice fit for what we just got done talking about. Um, I, my memory is now I, I watched this last weekend again, uh, and I just kind of going through the plots in my head, there's about four or five scenes or four or five sort of stories basically that's going on. And it begins uh, and ends. Uh, the, the movie begins and ends in the same spot in this coffee shop that we'll spend a lot of time uh, talking in uh, about and around. And I feel like um, the, the rest of the plot sort of interweave and it, they serve the function. So at one point, is it okay to do spoilers? Uh, I don't know. Like at this it, it's point. a twenty-year-old movie. Okay. Yes. Do <laughs> okay. spoilers. So you know, at uh, one point, listener, if you haven't watched it yet, pause it now. Go watch it, and then come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at one point in the movie, you know, you see uh, John Travolta and uh, 
Samuel Jackson walking around in these really cool black suits and ties. And that's at the beginning of the, towards the beginning of the movie. And then the next time you see them, they have these sort of strange, uh, like volleyball uniform shirts on. And, uh, and then it's just kind of odd to you because you have no idea how it got there. And so to the viewer of that, it's just sort of like shocking and weird and makes you ask questions about why they changed their clothes and why they changed them into that. Right. And so when the, it's revealed as to how they got into those clothes by doing this sort of flashback sequence, I, I feel like it gives the reader, um, first of all, it creates this gap of confusion and then fills that gap. But in doing that, it gives the reader this sort of sense of insider knowledge at some point, you know, and I feel like you've been sort of initiated into the coolness of the movie once you sort of learn the secrets of, of, the, of the plot. And so for me, it, it serves this very sort of... Uh, I don't want to say pandering to the hipster urge, but uh, it's it, it very much like fulfills that function, um, and so that that to me is like one of the one of the functions of it. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to that? It is. I, I like to think of this movie structurally as not so much a novel as a collection of interlocking short stories. So it's it's a very mm-hmm. profane '90s Winesburg, Ohio. Mm. <laughs> So I mean, it is it is almost an anthology film directed by a single director. Hmm. Although I, did you have trouble following it when you first saw it? Um, you know, there's the one moment when, um, don't be like, afraid to spoil it. Yes, when John Travolta's character dies uh-huh. and Bruce Willis shoots him. And that is utterly shocking because you see him both before and after that. He's sort of because this this is sort of obviously after all of the other events of the movie. Um, because, right. Um, and so uh, and yet it's sort of smack dab in the middle of the movie. And so when that happens, it is sort of like a shocking um, moment to the viewer that is a little confusing. But by that time, I think. It seems to me that you're sort of used to the sort of jumping back and forth at that point. Uh, and maybe I'm mis- reassembling the uh, maybe I'm reassembling the events incorrectly in my no, head. No, but no, you got that. You got that right. I, yeah. I would say it's actually more shocking to see him alive after that. Mm, right. That's right. I also feel like you now. Uh, this is <laughs> like <laughs> I don't. I don't want to like trash the movie. Okay. I, I do feel like there are sort of ethical problems with it at this point. Um, okay. And I didn't enjoy it as much as I did the first time I saw it. Okay. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's because I already sort of knew all these secrets and it was just, it just seemed uh, pretentious and clever to me at that point. But it also like thinking about that scene, when you see Travolta then come back to life, I think it works to cheapen death. Uh, in in a way that other moments in the movie do as well. Oh, interesting. Okay, that, that will I I, I want to get to later on. I, I have some notes about that um, tendency in the movie uh, later on, but I do feel like um, uh, this is one of those moments uh, that I bring up now because we're talking about the the intercut scenes that where you the imp- nothing is meaningful in it, and, and I feel like uh, the death of the one of the beloved characters of the movie should be more meaningful than it is, and, and so okay. I, I don't. That, that's you know my own opinion, and I'm an old fart. So, um. well, it's interesting because I, I was actually going to refer to that sequence as well. And for me, I mean, especially the first couple times I watched it, but even now, uh, seeing uh, Vincent Vega, John Travolta's character, uh, die, and then see him refuse to interpret events as miraculous when you know Samuel L. Jackson's character Jules offers extends to him the offer of salvation in that final scene of the movie, I think actually adds some depth to that final coffee shop scene that wouldn't be there if you didn't already know that staying in the game was going to kill Vincent Vega. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well to I, quote Samuel Jackson, you make an interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> very good. The, very good. The, the other thing is that with the marketing for that movie, as I recall it, pushed Travolta as the hero to a degree that it really is kind of shocking when he dies. Although I think it would be shocking when he dies, even if the movie were in chronological order. Mm. Interesting. It, Interesting. It's just like, I mean, we know Uma Thurman is on the cover of the uh, DVD and, and on the poster and, and she's in what? 15 minutes of the movie. And the least interesting 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, like although she's, I, I, she's I excellent. The most painful. Oh really? You like her scenes? Oh, I think she's. I think she's so good. I, and I don't usually like Uma Thurman, but I think in Tarantino movies, because Tarantino clearly loves her, 
Uh-huh. I, I think she comes across as, as really great. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the Kill Bill movies, but yeah, um, she she's so good in those. And, and I, I don't think it's cause necessarily because she's a great actress. I think it's because there's something about Tarantino as filmmaker that makes her shine. Hmm. Fair enough, fair enough. The, the other thing I was going to bring up, and, and this is why I asked you if you'd already seen Reservoir Dogs when you, when you saw this, because Reservoir Dogs has a much more complicated uh, chronological structure, or mm-hmm. non, non-chronological structure, I suppose, where, where there's a central event in Reservoir Dogs, the, the, the robbery of this jewelry store, and you never see it. And, and everything else you get is in pieces that seem to me to be almost randomly put together. So I mean, this is something that Tarantino loves or loved. I'm not sure the degree to which I haven't seen his last two movies. No, so I haven't either. I haven't seen anything since Death Proof, which I don't think uses that structure. I didn't even see that. Gosh, it was on Grindhouse. Yeah. It was a, it was his part of yeah. Grindhouse. I liked Death Proof more than other <sighs> people did. Yeah. I'm underwhelmed by Tarantino at this point. I couldn't get through *Inglorious <laughs> Bastards*. Like, I—it wasn't the violence or the you know subject matter. It was just the twenty-minute scenes of witty dialogue. I'm just rolling my eyes. Like, okay, yes, I get it. And then I, I just turned it off. So. You know who Tarantino so. is? Tarantino is Beck. You know the musician Beck. Beck. That's actually a very apt comparison. Keep yes. rolling with that. Be- Beck is makes this very glossy, very hip music, and it's uh, especially early Beck. It, it's nothing but a bunch of quotations from other people, which is what Tarantino does best. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's an emotional hollowness at the heart of it that I, I I don't know. Sometimes sometimes Tarantino seems like he means something, but for the most part, it seems purposely meaningless, um, and even mm. even kind of fla- flaunts its meaninglessness. Oh, and, sure, and, sure. And then even even when you get something that is meant to be moving, like I think the second Kill Bill movie is 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 supposed to move you. It ends up being like Beck's album, um, Sea Change, which is not so much a moving emotional record as a series of quotations from moving emotional <laughs> records. Nice. So, yes. I, I mean, I enjoy Beck and I enjoy Tarantino, but... At a certain point, you just have to say, oh, that's so 90s. Yeah, yeah. And see, I, I, I'm not an especially big fan of Beck or Tarantino. I think you've just put your finger on why. Yeah. This is why we invented metamodernism, Michael, right? I, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> oh, touche, touche. <laughs> well, on that note, Michael, the Los Angeles that serves as the movie's setting is a bizarre place, to say the least. One populated with British stick-up teams, with hillbilly perverts, with gangsters who fix boxing matches, all sorts of weirdness going on. Uh, As briefly as is possible, talk a little bit about the range of characters in this film. And if you're feeling especially bold, talk a little bit about how the range of connotations of the N-word does some work with that characterization. Okay, so, I mean, I kind of spoiled what I was going to say about about everything being quotation, but that is certainly true of the characters in this movie. They all seem to have walked in from other movies. Mostly mostly and this is again very um very Tarantino, I guess I guess it's the best I was gonna say very nineties, but the reason it's very nineties is because it's very Tarantino. Yeah. Um these are all characters who come in from like black exploitation films and kung fu movies mm-hmm. uh from the seventies. And and in fact I believe that the famous fake Bible verse that Samuel L. Jackson quotes is straight out of a Kung Fu movie. Although I couldn't tell you which one, cause I don't watch Kung Fu movie. You know, David Grubbs would probably be able to tell us, but right. we'll get there. We'll get yeah, there. So, so I mean, all, all these, all these characters are less recognizable people as they are recognizable types from, as the title suggests, Pulp Fiction, right? From, from Grindhouse mm-hmm. cinema, from um, crappy movies that are, are the opposite of high art. You know, I, I would hesitate to even call them low art. They're just, uh, you know, exploitation pictures. So um, it makes sense that it would take place in Los Angeles, both because that's the city Tarantino is from and it's the city where Hollywood is. And so it's the city that creates these types to begin with. But it's also um, of every major city I've ever been to, other than maybe New York City, it is the city that is most mixed in terms of the types of people who live there. It is a very... Um, 
ethnically and culturally diverse city in, in ways that I imagine are helpful when you're putting together a movie like, like Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. So race ends up playing a part of it. It's not a movie about race the way I understand Django Unchained or um, Inglorious Bastards is about race. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a movie that uses race as an identifier. So again, if you think of it as a black exploitation movie, I'm not going to say that the frequent use of the N word in the movie makes more sense, or that, that it's it's okay, but it makes more sense at least. Yeah. Um, so I read an interview with the film theorist Monthia Diawara, who is um, I believe from Mali, and he says that. Um, the, the key to understanding this movie is understanding this thing he calls transtextuality or the movement of cultural styles from character to character, hybridity, multiple subject positions. Obviously, that's what's going on in the movie. But in particular, this takes Speaking place. Speaking of critical theory. Yeah. <laughs> but in particular, this takes place. I didn't do it. <laughs> in the form of this black exploitation uh, film. And, and actually, it's really important that Travolta is at the center of the film because he. Um, they didn't want Travolta. They wanted Johnny Depp and Daniel Day-Lewis. That's who the the, the studio wanted. Hmm. Can you imagine this movie with Johnny Depp? Although Ooh. that was before Johnny Depp became all Tim Burton-fied. Yeah. Anyway, um, so here's what here's what Diawara says. Um, By bringing Travolta back with the implied references to the film Saturday Night Fever of the late 70s and the television show Welcome Back, Cotter that he played in with, I think, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, a black actor with a big afro, and by his association with popular culture, which has always been an area that engages blacks and black culture, Travolta became a white proxy by which black culture was brought into the film. So the idea here is even with the the white character at at the center of the film, you have a uh, parody is not the right word, but extended reference to black culture that makes the film cool because in America, blackness has always been cool at the same time that it's been dangerous. And of course, Pulp Fiction is equal parts cool and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that excuses the extended scene where Tarantino himself playing the character, Jimmy uses the, the N word over and over and over again. Oh my gosh. uh, I, I would say probably not. Uh, but you know, then that got him into trouble. But I, I think he is—he is purposely invoking these black exploitation films as a way of being cool as a white person, mm-hmm. to to greater and lesser effect. I think I don't think anybody would miss that uh, that language coming out of Tarantino's mouth in the film. Right, right. Mm. Danny, would you add anything about the well, characters or about the language? Yeah, I'm thinking about what he just said about um, sort of the the proxy black culture located on John Travolta's character. Um, and I feel like um, that sounds good in the context of this movie, yet when Miley Cyrus does this at a VMA Awards, she sort of lambasted it as assuming blackface, you know, and, and, it, and it's a uh, – uh, and I'm just curious as to why that doesn't get um, – that doesn't. This movie doesn't get labeled in that same way. But, but it um, does. I mean, Spike Spike Lee says that's that. true. Uh, okay, so and also have, there was no Facebook in 1994. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. The meme hasn't been invented yet. So all right, uh, that's a good point. All right. Well, and also back to Travolta though. I do feel like the, the the casting choices extend beyond him because you you have bringing in very famous actors uh, like into this L.A. scene, which I think um, makes L.A. an appropriate uh, location because it is so closely associated with Hollywood. This movie is like far from Hollywood. I mean, it's never Hollywood uh, in terms of setting, but it's all Hollywood because in terms of the characters that are assembled. Not only you have Travolta, mm-hmm. uh, Samuel Jackson had been in things before. I don't know if he was a big star. He until was actually in – I think his big breakout role was the Spike Lee film um... – Jungle Fever. Oh, interesting. Okay. Have, I think he was in stuff before that, but that was he played the junkie brother in Jungle Fever, which is a terrible mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> he had a minor role in Goodfellas, I remember, um, too. But um, but so you have him, you have Christopher Walken, you have Rosanna Arquette, you Harvey have Keitel. Uh, Harvey Keitel mm-hmm. and Bruce Willis. I mean, you have just this slew of like recognizable uh, uh, the the red haired guy that sells the drugs. Uh, he was in all these romantic comedies in the eighties. Uh, Do you know who that was, was supposed to be? Kurt Cobain. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. That's interesting. Uh, Eric Stoltz, I think his name is, if I remember right. But, um, but anyway, so you have all of these recognizable figures from Hollywood, sort of. And I feel like the casting bridges the gap between the indie 
vibe and the mainstream audience. Um, and so I feel like Travolta is like the most obvious um, example of that uh, for the reasons that you're saying. And also, this is one reason I've never, never forgiven Tarantino's because he sort of resurrected this uh, zombie career of John, of John Travolta and ruined <laughs> late 90s cinema. How many bad 90s movies uh, had or happened because of this movie? And this is a, like, this is a terrible thing. So, um, but, uh, and also, <laughs> the, the thing about um, L.A. is that it's different than New York in that it doesn't have like a, a recognizable cityscape. Yes, like yeah, you recognize the city as a character, and L.A. Mm-hmm. is more like a, a, a canvas upon which characters from Hollywood perform. And, and I feel like L.A. in that way is sort of the the, the perfect sort of city um, for this kind of movie because it could be any city at this, but at the same time, it's very Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if, yeah. You've, if you've been to Los Angeles, there's something true about this movie that you can't quite put your finger. I mean, because it's not like there's people running around shooting people and getting hit by cars, and you know, there's gimps walking around all over the place. <laughs> but but there, there's something about this movie that really does feel like Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be the artificiality of the movie, like feels like the artificiality of Los Angeles. So. Ah. Uh. I don't like LA either. I, I'm making lots of enemies today. So <laughs> yeah, I know. Noticed. <laughs> so. I find it difficult to hate LA. I mean, I haven't spent a whole lot of time there, but there, there's something about it that appeals to me. I don't like it as much as New York or Chicago or. Well, Danny, I remember back in the mid '90s watching this film with friends at Milligan, like I've described before. Uh, I knew somewhere down deep in my soul that folks back in our home churches in Indiana probably wouldn't approve of what we were watching. And one complaint that surfaced early on is how violent the film is. But in the 20 intervening years, I've come to think that the body count in Pulp Fiction isn't half of what an average John Wayne movie stacks up. Uh, In what ways is this a notably violent movie? And in what ways does this reputation get overplayed? That's a good point. And I feel like not only are the the, the relatively few bodies, right? Um, But the you don't really see violent, all the violent acts are typically sort of off camera, just maybe barely off camera, but, but off camera. So it's not visually disgusting. Uh, in most cases, there are like obvious exceptions. And so it is, but it's still, we remember it as this, um, violent movie. And in fact, my wife was telling me she hates this movie. Uh, when I was watching it, uh, she was out of the house. And so I had to, I got, that was the moment I had to watch it the two hours I had to watch it. And, and, uh, and she said that, she remembered when she'd seen it before, like she felt like she had just like murdered a bunch of people herself. Like she felt like really uh, the violence is appalling to her. Yeah, my, my wife reports, well, she didn't report she felt like she murdered people, but she won't watch Tarantino movies, period. She, she says they're too violent. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to me. I, and I, so I guess to get at your question about uh, in what ways is it a notably violent movie? I, and I'll go back to what I, alluded to earlier i feel like it's the meaninglessness of the violence that's most appalling um the example that is coming to mind uh is in this in the car where that marvin character gets shot in the face like completely accidentally right Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you have this moment a that is played up for laughs i mean as soon as they do it it's just like let's the joke the dialogue that ensues from that between samuel jackson jules and and vincent uh becomes um like comical right and so yeah. mm-hmm. the death becomes like material for comedy like as it happens and, and so that's kind of disturbing on some level on top of that is the fact that it's a kind of mysterious act like vincent's gun goes off for some reason we don't know just after they had survived uh, a gun attack in a equally mysterious act and so juxtaposing right the, by, a, by a guy who's a dead ringer for Jerry Seinfeld, which still disturbs me. <laughs> it's true. Holy cow. I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, you have this sort of miracle on one hand and minutes later, like whatever the inverse of a miracle is a curse, uh, like on the other. And, and so mm-hmm. and, and it becomes fodder for humor. And then the so that starts this other plot point where they have to figure out how to what to do with the body. And Harvey Keitel's character comes in and. Mm-hmm that whole interaction is played up for laughs. And so instead of like mourning the dead person, uh, you have Jules talking about how he's on brain duty and, 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 all, and it's, it's picking up little bits of brain out of your hair and all this sorts of thing. And, and it's just, so for me, that's a violent act that you don't see it happen. 
I mean, you see the blood splatter, but you don't mm. really, you don't see the entry and you don't see a head exploding or anything like that. And so I feel like the implications of the violence are what makes us remember it so much um, because it's so sort of ultimately uh, meaningless and too ironic. Um, it's like, and it's kind of cute in much the same way that the famous violent scene from Reservoir Dogs was when uh, Michael Madsen cuts that guy's ear off. Now, right? that, that is a scene I'd never care to see again. Yes, I know. But you see him going to work. My memory of this is, and then the camera kind of pans away. So you don't see the ear coming off uh, per se um, so violently. I mean, then you see him without an ear later on, but, but it's sort of, so the horrific act is, off screen, but just off screen and treated really disrespectfully. And so um, I, I guess that, that that's the answer to both questions. It's overplayed because you don't see it, but it is notably violent because of how it's presented. I, I think there, there's also the notion that everything in this movie is super stylized. Mm, right? mm-hmm. so, so everything is very artificial and the violence is not artificial in the way that like an action movie's violence is. It, the violence feels real. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the amount of blood that happens when he shoots Marvin in the face is the amount of blood you would imagine would actually happen. It's, it's you know, disgusting, and it sticks around. And so you, you get a, uh, what the TV tropes people call mood whiplash, right, where you, you're, you're laughing and you're laughing and you're laughing, and then you can't laugh anymore. And I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say how much you hate it, Danny, because the Coen brothers do it too. I, I was, <laughs> you know, the Coen brothers are actually who I'm thinking of as doing the things that this movie's trying to do, but doing it better. Oh, like, I, uh, I agree they do it better. <laughs> and I, I agree that Tarantino owes more to them than is usually mentioned. Like, I think the uh, the horrible scene from Wet Reservoir Dogs owes an awful lot to a scene where in uh, Blood Simple where a guy wipes up an enormous amount of blood while I'm a Believer plays. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Daydream Believer. It's some monkey song. But um, I, I, I think if, if you're if you're talking about Horrible violence made more horrible by being surrounded by silliness. I, I, I mean, the, I don't see how you can condemn Tarantino and praise the Coen brothers. Well, the Coen brothers, so I'm thinking of the scene in um, um, Fargo. So you have this. Yeah, that's a movie act. that came to my mind as well. With the wood chipper, okay? Um, this horrible act. Um, and by the way, did you catch uh, Steve Buscemi's uh, 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 cameo in, in Pulp Fiction? He plays the Buddy Holly waiter. That, that's, mm-hmm. Does he really? Uh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's actually pretty funny. Speaking of wood chippers, I guess. Uh, but he, so after this horrible act, uh, you have justice is served for one thing. Um, the, the, the Marge uh, catches the, the criminal, and then she actually shames him in the car for, and, and reflects on the meaninglessness of the death, right? And I think this movie never takes the time to reflect on its own meaninglessness. And so mm, while the meaninglessness okay. is there in, in the Coen brothers, I feel like the movie itself actually reflects on it in the same way that the, you talked about, I, this is perhaps a tangent, um, but the, in the movie, the LA scene, the characters all seem like they came out of other movies. That's the same thing in, in a Coen brothers movie, right? Uh, you have that same sort of uh, what you have in the raising Arizona, you have this sort of person from the post-apocalyptic sort of Mel Gibson movie. Right. And mm-hmm. then you have uh-huh. like all these people who come out of other movies essentially, but the way they do it has a kind of thoughtfulness to it <laughs> that I don't necessarily see. It, it's, it's, it's just as joyful and exuberant, but it also has sort of a moral weight to it. Uh, and, and that I, I can't uh, describe like right now without thinking about it. But see, the, the, the one I was thinking of, and I'm going to spoil the movie. So if you haven't seen burn after reading, um, fast forward a minute and a half or whatever, but in, in burn after reading, um, you have a very funny scene where Brad Pitt is hiding in George Clooney's closet and George Clooney finds him. He doesn't know who he is. It's a a ridiculous plot that has led up to this point. And Brad Pitt smiles this unbelievably stupid looking smile. And George, George Clooney blows his head off. I mean, it's, it's very Marvin esque. And I mean, it's, it's horrifying and it's horrifying the same way the violence in this movie is horrifying. And it, it is done for just as stupid reasons and with just as little reflection. And I mean, maybe, maybe the answer is burn after reading is a Coen brothers version of a Tarantino film. And, and it, thus it's, it, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to say it's their best work, mm. but I, I think that, I think that moment is typical of them. 
Hmm. There's, a, there's a very similar moment in um, Intolerable Cruelty, which is really played for laughs. Mm. You know, these are two movies of theirs I haven't seen, so oh, I, I can't sorry speak for oh, okay. okay. Well, but I remember though in um, Blood, uh, no, sorry, uh, the gangster movie, uh, Miller's Crossing. Um, at the end, when Gabriel Byrne's character uh, kills uh, John, Ter- uh, uh, John Turturro's character uh, with this in this very sort of heartless way, I mean, spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> but this is like a. That's his character arc is sort of like the the morality of the that's the question the movie has been asking of him. Does he have a heart? Right. And and then that's the answer to the question. So even if the question, the answer to the question is no, it asks the question, um, does he have a heart? And I feel like Tarantino's movie, this movie doesn't stop to ask the question And, and, and it just sort of doesn't think about the consequences. Uh, I, I don't so. know. I mean, well, we'll, I'm, I know we're going to get to this in a second, but I mean, I, I think it answers the question that Jules has some sort of conscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will well, say, okay, go, go ahead, Danny, <laughs> that I, I hope I'm not sounding too critical of this movie. It underwhelmed me upon, you know, a, 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 this viewing of it, but see, I liked it much more than I did the first time I saw it. You mentioned that, and I, I was like, I, it's interesting to me. But I do feel like Samuel Jackson is like stunningly good in this movie, and I feel like he absolutely makes the movie worth watching just to see him. And I feel like, mm-hmm. like something about his performance does like recover some of the the heart behind um, the meaningless violence of the movie. I think you're right about that. All right. Well, I'm going to use that to segue, Michael. I didn't pick this movie just because it's 20 years old, or just because it happened when I was a senior in high school. But also because this was one of those movies that got my atheist friends talking about theology. Uh, And for me, I mean, that makes it an interesting topic of conversation. One sequence in the movie that certainly got some play uh, among my Christian college circles and with my atheist friends back in Indiana was the ongoing conversation between Jules and Vincent on whether or not to interpret a certain plot event as a miracle or not. So... Michael, tell us about that scene. Tell us what they got right, what they got wrong about miracles. So in the beginning of the movie, they are they are in this apartment of these kind of 20-something slackers, and they are recovering the briefcase that's the MacGuffin for the whole film, right? It's probably the most famous MacGuffin in film history because it's just you, – you never see what's in it. You just see this orange light protruding from it, whatever. Mm-hmm. So when the movie returns to the scene near the end – uh, what we didn't learn the first time was there was a guy hiding in the bathroom with a very large gun, and he came out. He comes out and and shoots five or six times at Jules and Vincent, and doesn't at hit point he, blank range. Uh, yeah, and and somehow doesn't hit. The, I mean, this is a huge gun. I think they call it a hand cannon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't hit them. Um, Jules, who is really best known in this whole in the, in the movies. Um, in the way everybody remembers the movie as, as uh, quoting this elaborate fake Bible verse, which we'll get to um, interprets this as God protecting him. This is, this is some sort of divine intervention that keeps him from getting killed by this man who by all rights should have very easily killed both of them. Um, and, and he has a, a, a conversation with Vincent about it who refuses to believe this. And, and one, so one way of reading the movie – oh, and I, I sh- I, I'm sorry. I should tell the rest of the story. So uh, Jules decides because of this that he's going to get out of the hitman business, which I, I guess if you believe God is trying to talk to you would be one of the things God would tell you if you were a hitman. <laughs> you, sh- you probably shouldn't be a hitman. It's not a, right. not, not a terribly divine uh, profession. Stop doing that. Good so, hurt. So, so Jules is – character arc in the movie is moving from this cold-blooded hitman um, to to a guy who is going to let the two people who are robbing the coffee shop he's in in the last scene of the movie get away. Um, and, and it is a big move. I, I mean, because nothing about him in the first scene of the movie makes you think he's going to do this at the end of the movie. Uh, and n- if you know anything about Tarantino, nothing, nothing about Tarantino's usual MO is going to let you make you think that he, that anybody's going to not seek revenge, right? Because that's, mm-hmm. that's what Tarantino characters do because they're all out of old westerns and kung fu movies. Uh, so so he lets them get away, and, and then he gets that, – that's his last act in the movie, and he 
presumably gets out of out of the business because the the earlier scene where Travolta gets shot, he is working alone, or rather, he's working with um, oh man, Marcellus Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way of reading the movie is that yes, that that was indeed God protecting Jules and Vincent, and in Vincent's refusal to recognize a miracle for a miracle, he has rejected divine grace and is thus destroyed by the by the chronological end of the movie. Whereas um, whereas Jules, who accepts it as a miracle, accepts it as divine intervention, is spared and presumably goes on to live some sort of fulfilling life. Now, whether that's a good interpretation of the movie, I don't know. It, it, it makes sense. And and certainly Vincent is portrayed throughout the movie as little more than a screw-up. right? He's He has been sent to Amsterdam for several years, presumably because he's already addicted to drugs and Marcellus Wallace saw him as a liability. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he already got one extra chance and he blew that too. Cause he's still on heroin when he gets back, which almost kills, uh, Wallace's wife. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that the idea here is not so much that grace exists, but that if you don't accept grace, you're kind of stuck with the, 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 uh, consequences of your actions. However, I think we may be overreaching because I have a hard time of think with thinking of Tarantino as having any kind of theological imagination whatsoever. I think he's he's mostly playing with tropes here, and this happens to be one he can play with. Okay, Danny, what would you add? Um, I agree with that. I think that uh, what the I mean it's a great reading too, <laughs> but I agree with the second sentiment too. Uh, the second that last half of that, I do think though that it's interesting if he has decided to do good um, for a, a, for his, with his life after this moment in the coffee shop that he allows a man, that the person he's helping is he's helping a criminal commit an act against other innocent people, like of stealing mm-hmm. their wallets, right? And, and so it's, that's an interesting um, complication to his decision to do good, right? I mean, why not just sort of capture them or something and, and stop crime? And so there's still, there's still sort of a, uh, an outlaw Ele- like element there like it's sort of like he still only sees criminals as human beings everyone who's not sort of involved in some kind of criminal ex- uh, enterprise is just sort of a backdrop to the rest of this movie and, and I feel like that that's an interesting complication but I, I think that Michael's reading of that scene is very interesting and I agree with it mm-hmm. yeah I mean what what struck me about it uh, watching it here recently prepping for the show is the very individualistic interpretation of miracles that completely eluded me 20 years ago. Uh, that, you know, I mean, the, the most profound that the character Jules can get is that because I experienced it as a miracle, it must be. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I realize, like both of you have noted, that Quentin Tarantino is no theologian. <laughs> uh, but I do find it interesting that, again... Uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not as interested in film history as I am in sort of the pop cultural moment there in the mid to late nineties is that again, in several conversations I had that sort of became one of the sort of go-to conversations about the nature of the miraculous that, you know, for at least a few years there, you know, it became sort of an acceptable thing to say the miraculous is sheerly a function of the individual's interpretation uh, and again, I mean, I, it's one of those things where, you know, I always think that, you know, film is more influential than the economic thinkers of our day are going to acknowledge. And I think that's one of the places where I've seen that play out. So see, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I mean, I don't think miracles are the function of a person's decision to see them as miracles. But I think if there are miracles, any miracle that happens is always going to be explainable by other means. I mean, this is something yeah. Sartre says in existentialism is a humanism. Oh. See, I thought you were going to go brothers Karamazov uh, on no, me. Which is the other place I was going to go. <laughs> they make the same case there. So, right. Like that doesn't particularly bother me. And in fact, I, I got to uh-huh. say the reason I enjoyed this movie more than I remembered enjoying it was because of that, that plot. I, I did not remember that in any way. So, Oh, okay. Um, All right. I, I, like I said, I don't think Tarantino has a theological imagination, but I think he kind of accidentally said something. <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it <laughs> it's a miracle oh, there you go there you go well danny the other explicitly theological question that the film can't avoid even if it didn't seek it out 
uh, is that of biblical hermeneutics. Now, I remember when my high school atheist friends asked me about Jules and his Bible quote, I poured over every English translation I could find of the book of Ezekiel, looking for that version of Ezekiel 25.17. Now, I couldn't, of course, because that speech is only loosely based on that particular verse in Ezekiel. Uh, Danny, you can recite the Pulp Fiction version of it in your best Samuel L. Jackson voice if you want to. Uh, But whether or not you do that, talk to us about its use early in the film and then in the closing scene as another sort of contest of hermeneutics. All right. Well, I'm not going to dare like try to do the Samuel L. Jackson because uh, it's it's such a great speech the way he does it. Um, <laughs> but the path of I'll, I will quote it though. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, uh, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness of the darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. That's the one my moment I could do. Uh, <laughs> I knew you could sustain. <laughs> those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. All right. And so uh, Michael set it up very nicely. This is the, the speech he gives right before uh, executing uh, this uh, – this schmucky guy who has this briefcase for whatever reason, whatever's in it, we don't know. Um, and so this is, uh, uh, this is a moment I think, and Michael's actually done a really good job of doing a hermeneutic reading of the larger implications of that scene. Cause this is right before the miracle happens, right? The, the mm-hmm. supposed miracle. And, um, but so already hermeneutics are sort of set up. Like there is a, an act of interpretation sort of set up, but I feel like, the contest as you describe it here uh, of hermeneutics is set up. So it's so that the viewer is tempted into doing interpretation um, in the way that Michael just did, I think. But I think the first scene is to me that where he first reads this is is like pure spectacle. And and like I said, this is Samuel Jackson is just brilliant in this movie. I mean, he uh, just absolutely like stunning performance. One that it's one of the times you talk about, you can't take your eyes off somebody when they're on the screen. I mean, he is just so like into that character and just makes him such a like fascinating figure. And I think that that, the speech plays into that and the way he delivers it certainly plays into that. Um, he didn't win the best supporting actor. I think he lost that year to Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Um, so that mm-hmm. was sort of just bad timing because that was also an amazing performance. Um, but um, the juxtaposition um, of, of those two scenes then is, is the one where Ju- uh, so in the second, I mean, I'm jumping ahead. So he reads it again or he says it again, he quotes it again from memory to Tim Roth's character at the close of the movie in sparing his life. Right. And then he, then he does his little interpretation of it, of what it means. I've always just said this and I never thought about what it means. I've just thought it was some cold SH stuff to, uh, to say to somebody before <laughs> I, I killed them. Right. And so, which is a great line, right? It's a great line and well delivered again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, those are the sort of two moments. It's kind of like a bookend in the movie. And, um, and so he does attempt to interpret it for us there. Um, but I feel like the juxtaposition is where they want us to um, uh, see Jules as moving from the God of wrath to sort of a God of mercy. And I feel like his reference to Kung Fu in, in that speech at, at the end uh, where he's going to walk the earth like Cain and Kung Fu, get in mm-hmm. adventures and help people. Right? Uh, and so uh, meet people and get in adventures. And so he like, that is a very sort of Eastern zenny like thing to do, but one filtered completely through pop culture again. And so I feel like it, it's almost like a trap <laughs> trying to make you think it means something when it doesn't. And so I almost feel like, the film is making fun of Samuel Jackson for trying to find meaning in what he's doing um, in the way that it's probably making fun of us for trying to find meaning in what the film is doing. Um, if what I'm saying is makes, makes any sense. And, and this is also a very Coen brothers kind of thing. I think this is a very similar thing that they try to do. And so this leads to us wondering what's in the suitcase. Is there some sort of uh, significance to that or is it just this sort of uh, film uh, convention, this MacGuffin, as, as Michael said. And so I feel like the hermeneutics is sort of like a MacGuffin in and of itself. It, it's, it's sort of like it's 
pretending like there's something there and, and giving you the temptation to start looking for it uh, as a way to keep your interest. Maybe I'm being cynical. Michael, would you agree with that cynicism or would you take a different turn? Oh, I think even that is is looking for too much. I, I think <laughs> I think it it's you know, it's just sounds cool. I I I I think this is a movie of surfaces. Yeah. Well and that's what Jackson says in his speech to uh, Roth at the end when he says I never thought about what that meant. I just thought it was some cold stuff to say, right? And so I think that's the answer. It was. It just sounds cool, right? And, and I think that his attempt then to find meaning in it is kind of laughable. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Well, I'm actually going to exit at you cynical SOBs. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't you call us cynical mother effers? <laughs> Given the movie, yeah. <laughs> I'll put that on my wallet. (laughs) Here's what I see going on in that final speech. And listeners, uh, I encourage you to write in and either tell me that I'm once again being the Pollyanna of our trio uh, or say that these guys need to lighten up a little bit. Uh, But what I see happening there is his assignment of roles in that speech. Uh, He does say he used to think it was just some cold stuff to say. But then he says he also used to think that, you know, he was the one doing the protecting. What happens in that moment, even though it's a fake Bible verse, in that Bible verse, he comes to realize that he is the object of divine wrath. And at least in the logic of the movie, and I grant that it's a movie of surfaces, but I still think that this is a significant moment. He realizes that he is the wicked man that he's been talking about this whole time and that this event this miracle uh has made him realize that he needs to stop doing that now i mean is it ah, gosh i can't even think of a good example i mean you know uh is it the apostle uh no it's not you know i mean this is not and i can't even think who the main actor was in the apostle i'm robert, so flu- uh, robert duvall yeah is this robert duvall in the apostle no it's not is it a moment in the movie that is still pretty cool yes i think so so, uh, once again, listeners, you weigh in, you judge among us. Um, I think these guys are just being jerks at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> with that said, I'm looking at the timer, uh, we're heading towards the exit. So Michael, as with any movie episode, the moderator is going to pull the conversation towards the moderator's interests. I'm interested in these hermeneutical things that you guys have no interest in and that's okay. But now I'd like to hear what you two would point up, uh, as we head towards the exit, Michael, tell us what else a Christian humanist should look for, good or bad, in Pulp Fiction, then pass it on along to Danny. I have already said that Tarantino does not have a theological imagination. That being said, I think this movie is about redemption in the sense that it has, that, that Tarantino is literally redeeming John Travolta's career, which, <laughs> lest we forget, was supposed to be dead in 1994. He was a laughingstock. And Tarantino, I mean, I, I I had to struggle not to say anything when Danny was complaining about it because Tarantino really did resurrect this guy's career, and he made a series of very bad movies throughout the '90s. I'm trying to think if he did another good one. Face Off. You guys give him uh, Face Off. Is this no? a good one? Is this an example? I was going to say one? that's the good one compared to Battlefield Earth. You know? Yeah, Broken Arrow. Oh. So yeah, uh, love song for Bobby Long. Oh, he, oh man! If you haven't seen that, uh, he uh, he tries to do a uh, New Orleans accent. Woo. <laughs> yeah. So um, what you get is t- uh, life imitating art. Travolta Travolta actually acts like Vincent Vega does in that that interpretation I, I gave you earlier. <laughs> the uh, the gods of Hollywood have spared his career, and he refuses to see it as a miracle, and goes on living the way he was living before. <laughs> making the same crappy movies he would have made anyway. And uh, now he's a laughingstock again, right? Yeah. I guess. Has he done anything time. in the last five years? Uh, he made a, uh, oh, he made no. a uh, Christmas album with Olivia Newton-John a couple years oh, ago. Oh, that's right. There was the, <laughs> wait, he was in that Punisher movie. That actually wasn't a bad movie. Not any thanks to him, but uh, yeah. That was that. That's I could think of that one. So that's anyway, it. a movie about redemption and resurrection, but uh, a movie with a sad epilogue. <laughs> Danny, what do you got? 
Well, I, I do. Th- I mean, I have been hard on this movie um, and harder than I meant to be. I really the hardest thing I could say about it is I was underwhelmed by it in retrospect. And, and a lot of that is is sort of Tarantino fatigue on my own part uh, th- by this point in his career, because he's done the same thing so many times subsequently to it. that It just looking at the original now seems um, kind of pale. So uh, that that said, like there is in terms of the energy of like performances the uh there are several really i've already talked about samuel L. jackson who i think is just just absolutely fabulous in this movie and also like christopher walken has this amazing like little cameo in the movie where he mm-hmm. sort of gives a speech to bruce willis who also gives a very uh, terrific performance like understated sort of action figure uh performance uh, like he normally does but like there are so many like little moments of like terrific acting and the delivering of really uh quirky lines that are surprising every time a word comes out of somebody's mouth it's not a word you would expect and that makes it this sort of like humorous like uh like hilarious movie to watch at times because of this the strangeness of the dialogue and almost randomness of it and and in certain hands i think that the performances are really really good in this movie um now there are like sequences in it that i think are kind of pointless i think that the uma thurman sequence is is drags on and is not very interesting and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing but i do think that um by and large the performances in this movie are are worth watching and and i really don't feel as badly about the movie as i have sounding (laughs) this whole episode (laughs) i'm already feeling very guilty i'm thinking nathan and i were praising it so somebody somebody (laughs) had to attack it well i suppose true enough true enough well, like I said, I mean, I, I really do uh, enjoy thinking about this movie. Uh, you know, it came at a point, you know, in my own sort of intellectual career, with, which was time just about right. Like Michael said, this is one of those movies that is good to take on as a college freshman and uh, dig into some of these things. Uh, I will ultimately agree with Danny that it's not a great film, uh, but uh, I do think that, you know, at the very least, it is an entry into some conversations about what these questions might look like if they were played out differently. So uh, ultimately I agree with Danny. I just got irked that he wouldn't actually answer my hermeneutic question because I'm petty that way. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) So I want to thank Danny Anderson and Michael Farmer for joining me for this conversation. Uh, I don't know which of you guys has next week's show. Who's doing it and what are we doing? Uh, have we talked about that? Uh, is it my turn? It's your turn if you want it. Well, well, let's do that American uh, Great American Novel episode, if, if that's okay. Rock and roll. Sounds good. So, listeners, you can hear that next week. But until then, you can catch us on the web at christianhumanist.org. Email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can hit us on Facebook. You can find RSS feeds. We're on Stitcher. You can go on over to iTunes and give us lots of stars on those reviews. We enjoy all of that, and it brings us to a wider listening audience. And this party is always more fun as more people come in, so please go and do all of those groovy things. That's about all we've got for today. So, in behalf of Danny Anderson and Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs> <laughs>